Hello, everyone. I'm Eric Golden, and welcome to Making Markets. This show explores the psychology and structure that make up markets all over the world. Each week, we speak to experts about a different market so you can see what actually happens when money changes hands. From mainstream stock and bond markets to esoteric niches like vineyards, antique art, and crypto, we explain the transactions that underpin our economy. Making Markets is part of the Colossus family of podcasts, and you can find all our podcasts, including edited transcripts, show notes, and other resources at joincolossus.com. Eric Golden is the CEO of Canopy Capital. All opinions expressed by Eric and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the views of Canopy Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes and should not be construed or relied on as investment, legal, or tax advice. Clients of Canopy Capital may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast, including positions that are contrary to the opinions offered. My guest this week is Jim Bianco, the founder and president of Bianco Research. Jim is a friend and well-known on Wall Street for providing macro analysis since the 90s. He takes us through his unique perspective on the economy. We start with his contrarian view on interest rates. We then cover the change to the economy since COVID, such as remote work and the new consumer. We also talk about his new fixed income ETF, crypto, the Red Sea crisis, and more. Please enjoy this conversation with Jim Bianco. Jim, it's good to see you. I've gotten the pleasure of hanging out with you and chatting markets before, so I know this is going to be a lot of fun. You have a call that the 10-year treasury is going to 5.5%. You've even joked that they might put this on your tombstone. So I thought that'd be a fun place to start of in this market where people are mostly calling for the next move from the Federal Reserve is to cut and ease, meaning interest rates will go down. You have a contrarian view that interest rates are going higher. So why don't we start with that and then jump into your view on the economy? So yeah, it is going to go on my headstone, either being right or wrong at this point. Let me start big picture real quick. I think that bull market in bonds ended in August 2020 when we hit 50 basis points in the 10-year yield. We are in arguably year four of a multi-year bear market in bonds. Now, we're in a bear market. You could still have a year or two rally in the bond market. But I think that if you were to project out or ask me, where do I think interest rates are going to be one year, three years, five years from now, maybe even 10 years, I'd say equal to or probably higher than where we currently are in the low 4%. I'm using the 10-year as benchmark. So I still think that rates are still going to go up. Now, from the summer of 2020 until October of 23, that bear call looked good. And then we had a giant rally from October until the end of December. when We hit 380 on the 10-year note. It didn't look good. And now at least the bleeding has stopped because yields have stopped going down. So that's where we are. And that's why I'm in this multi-year bear market and bonds. Why am I there? I think that we've turned the cycle on inflation. And I think we are in a more robust or stickier inflation world. What I mean by sticky is I think that the natural rate of inflation now is somewhere around 3 to 4%. We're at 3.4. So I'd like to say, I think we're about there with all of the good news with inflation and that there isn't much left of another last mile to go to 2%. We'll see if that forecast plays out. Where did I come up with the five and a half number? Ultimately, I think interest rates should approximate what's called nominal GDP, real growth plus inflation. So if real growth is going to stay somewhere around two and a half percent, and 
That's where it has been in 23, and I think it will continue to be in 24. And 2.5%, to use Wall Street's language, is no landing. It's not a soft landing. It's not a hard landing. It's no landing. It's trend growth. It's GDP potential. That's what you should grow. That's what I mean by no landing. Planes not coming down at all. And if I were to argue three-ish percent on inflation, three plus two and a half is five and a half. And that's ultimately where I think that the 10-year yield is going to wind up going. Somewhere later this year is where I'm at with it. Now, if anything I've said turns out to be wrong, the economy's weaker than expected. It seems like everybody keeps whispering why it's going to be weaker than expected. I don't think it will be. If the inflation rate does crap out and go down to near 2%, then I'm too high on my interest rate forecast and I'll have to bring it down. What could cause inflation to go down if oil collapses or the economy collapses and just saps demand out of the inflation rate? So broadly speaking, that's where I come up with the five and a half number. 3% inflation plus 2.5% growth equals five and a half. Roughly speaking, that's nominal GDP. Roughly speaking, that's where interest rates should approximate is where you are in nominal GDP. To dive into that, what do you think on the other side could make inflation go back up? There's a couple of things I think that you could look at inflation from a few standpoints. Let's look at it from a mechanical standpoint. If oil or crude oil gets a bottom and starts moving higher and starts dragging up gasoline prices, that will take the year-over-year inflation numbers higher. Can that happen? Let me just point out to everybody that when it comes to oil, the volatility in oil is unbelievable. It moves 3% a day. I'm old enough to remember when it was, holy shit, it moved 3%. And now it's just Tuesday when it does that. So could oil go up $20, $25? Sure. It was at $94 in late September. It wasn't that long ago that it was nearly $100 on oil. So if oil prices go up, what could bring oil prices up? We've got problems in the Middle East. We've got problems in the Red Sea. So that could be one. Second one, if I was to just jump into the Red Sea, if there's a story out there that I think is there in plain sight that no one is appreciating is the Red Sea and that they're really not getting that this has a real disruptive potential for goods inflation. Now, everybody makes the wrong assumption here. Oh, but you're going to get your stuff. It didn't fall in the ocean. No ships have been sunk. Yeah, but we live in a just-in-time world. I don't need the shipper to say, you know that container full of parts you need to make your car, Volvo? Volvo is a specific example. You'll eventually get it somewhere in February. So chill out. You're going to get your stuff. Well, Volvo has already announced, that's not good enough. I need those parts on this day, this week, because just in time, if I don't have those parts, I don't finish my cars. They've already announced that they're going to idle production somewhere in early February. So is Michelin. So is Tesla. And Ikea said that they might wind up doing the same thing, depending on what happens. And you're going to hear more and more about this. So it isn't about getting your stuff. In 2020, you got all your stuff too. It was you got it late and it messed up your supply chain and your supply line and your production schedules. And I think that this is really what's messing things up and that this is going to continue to be a problem. What fixes the Red Sea, I think, is also people don't understand. What drives shipping, why they're going around Africa, why they're not going through the Red Sea? At the end of the day, the shippers, they'll go through the Red Sea and they'll dodge all of the missiles and drones from the Houthis if they could get insurance for their boats. Because in the world of shipping, insurance is broken into two things. There's sea risk insurance, your boat sinks, your boat breaks. 
containers fall into the ocean because of high waves. That's sea risk insurance. Then there's war risk insurance. And the war risk insurance, that part of it has gone up 10x to 20x. So if I had a $100 million container ship, $250 million worth of stuff on the ship, it's probably costing me two to $250,000 a shipment to ship between Asia and Europe if I went through the Red Sea. Now it's going to cost me nearly $3 million to get war insurance. And it's cheaper for them to say, you know what? I'll save the three million bucks. We'll pay the extra fuel charge. We're going around Africa. Yeah, and the stuff's going to be late, but I make more money as a shipper by not incurring that extra war risk insurance. So when people ask, when are we going to return back to shipping through the Red Sea and get the supply chains back to normal? Ask Lloyd's of London. When are they going to start lowering their insurance costs? And what have the shipping insurers announced in the last three or four days? They're not even going to write policies for UK, US, and Israeli shippers. Don't even ask, because we're not even going to write you a policy. French shippers, Chinese shippers, you can get a policy. You could make a run through the Red Sea if you want, but the rest of them can't. So I think that that's really what people have to start looking at. When are they going to go back? They're going to go back when they can get the insurance. These boats are too expensive. Stuff on the boats are too expensive. They can't go through, have a lucky missile hit the wrong part of the boat, and you are either stuck with tens of millions of dollars worth of damage, or the insurance company better pay tens of millions of dollars because they hit the wrong part of the container ship. So that's really why I think that this problem is going to continue and be goods inflationary. Housing inflation is another one. I think everybody's missing a bigger point about housing inflation. We look at the year-over-year numbers in Zillow and in Redfin and in apartment.com and say, look at how far they've come down and that the OER, owner's equivalent rent, housing inflation component, that that's going to follow. It will, except if you look at it on a cumulative basis, that the amount of cumulative housing inflation in the CPI index is understating the cumulative gains of either Case Shiller or Zillow or Redfin or apartment.com over the last four years. So do I think that housing inflation, it's year over year, 6%, will it come down to five or four? Yes. But I think that's all it's going to come down to is five or four. Is it going to come down to three or two? Because remember, housing inflation, about 35% of the index. No, because it's still undercounted the total inflation homes over the last couple of years. So I think that there's going to be some stickiness there. And then finally, wages. The simple answer is, if you look at year-over-year average hourly earnings, what is the average fee or the average wage that somebody makes on an hourly basis? It's up about 4% on a year-over-year basis. Simply put, if everybody's getting a 4% raise, they could pay 4% inflation because you get the same thing a year from now if you have 4% inflation. So if you've got 4% wages, maybe housing stays a little sticky. This Red Sea problem is going to cost goods prices to stay sticky as well, too. I add all that up, and I see that the inflation rate stays between 3 and 4%. Not 8, 10 Zimbabwe. I'm not off up there. I'm just saying 3 or 4%. And in a world where everybody wants five rate cuts because the inflation rate's going back to 2%, if we still continue to print out with a three handle on inflation and a two handle on real growth, what we've seen in the last part of January, I think will continue. Early mid-January, we had seven rate cuts priced in. March was going to be a rate cut. May was going to be a rate cut. But by the end of the month, 
what we found is that all of a sudden, the March rate cuts disappeared. And the May rate cuts have gone from 100% priced in to about 75% priced in. And that we're perpetually always three or four months away from the first rate cut. We never get closer. In three or four months, we'll still be three or four months away. And that's what I think a three handle on inflation and a two and a half handle on growth does, is it doesn't make everybody throw their hands in the air and say, forget it, the Fed's never going to cut rates. It's Don't worry, it's two meetings out. And then in two meetings, it's two meetings out. And in two meetings, it's two meetings out. And you never, ever quite get there. I want to zoom out a little bit on inflation because pre-COVID, through the early 2000s, even with the financial crisis, to me, we were fighting a different problem. We had no inflation. Bernanke's paper was the fear that the Fed was not as powerful when interest rates went negative and the Fed didn't have as much power. He had the strong belief that if you had Zimbabwe or his Volcker moment, that the Fed could step in and break inflation, but that deflation was the ultimate fear. And I felt period of managing money when people are talking about inflation, specifically in the fixed income market, the thought was that progress in technology are moving so fast that there's pressure on wages, there's pressure on prices. We just can do stuff with a lot less. We have an income inequality problem, which I'll get to of the haves making a lot more of this than the have nots. But there was this view that we would love to have inflation if we could do anything to get inflation back in the markets. COVID happens, there's a split view of it's transitory, it's permanent. This is a one-time thing. We don't usually have global pandemics where we shut the world down. Then we get to this new phase where now suddenly it's accepted that inflation is here to stay. And I think I'm just trying to understand how we went from one world. And maybe you disagree that the pre-COVID world wasn't driven by that. But how do we go from a world where we were begging for inflation to a world where we think we can't get inflation back down? So every so often we have these major events, the COVID shutdown restart of the economy. And you're right. We usually don't restart the economy. We never restart the economy. This is a unique event that we did in 2020, where we threw everybody out of work for one month and then called them all back to work eventually over a period of several months. The financial crisis before that, 9-11 before that, 87 crash, that these scarring economic events change attitudes. Coming out of the financial crisis, I think that the attitude was one of a little bit of conservativeness and concern. So the stock market starts taking off, and I keep the example simple so everybody can follow. You get your brokerage statement, or you look at your Zillow estimate on your house, and you go, oh, it went up. Oh, I have more savings. I have a higher net worth. What am I going to do about it? I'm going to feel better that my little nest egg is a little bit bigger so that if I have a rainy day, I've got a little bit more to fall back on. That's all I'm going to do. I'm going to feel better that I've got more savings or higher net worth because it doesn't show up as a savings rate number because the savings rate is you're spending less your income where this is just your broker statement swelled because the stock market went up or Zillow estimate went up because they said they think your house is worth more. But after 2020, maybe there was a PTSD about the shutdown restart. Now you get money from the government or you get your broker statement to go up and you got extra money. What do you do? We're going to the Bahamas. We're going to buy something. We're going to spend this money. We called it revenge travel. We saw people were spending this money right out of the gate. We were mailing people money in late 20 and early 21 under the idea that it was going to be so that you could survive. And what did we do with it? We bought airline tickets and cruise ship bookings is what we did with it. We weren't worried about where's my next meal going to come from. We were out there spending that money. So the attitude, I think, has changed coming out of this. Part of that attitude change you could see is in remote work. 
This is a thing now, three days a week in the office, two days a week at home. And we're not going back, I don't think, to five days a week again in the office. And no less than the federal government is trying to get everybody back in D.C., federal workers back to the office four days a week. And in the fall, they had to call that off because federal workers were saying, you want me back four days a week? I quit. I quit. I'll go find another job. We're not afraid. We are not afraid to make that line. We're pre-COVID, after the financial crisis. Boss, whatever you need. You need me here on Saturdays? Just don't fire me, is basically what our attitude was. So now we're seeing labor have a lot more power. That's why you're seeing so many more strikes. The Hollywood strike, the UAW strike, the Kaiser Permanente strike, even though it was only six days or so. You're starting to see a lot of people get a lot of strikes. The week we're recording, Southwest Pilots agreed to a new union contract with an immediate 29% wage increase. So all of a sudden, labor is getting more of the say over management because they're willing to walk. What was the first thing they always taught you about negotiation? Be willing to walk away from the table. Well, everybody's saying, look, I'm not coming back to the office five days a week and I will quit. And your boss looks at you and goes, yeah, you're serious. You will quit. And I don't want you to quit. So we'll find some compromise. So I think all of that is leading to whenever there's more money in our pocket because the stock market went up or government stimulus came, thing, we spend it. And that's why it's showing up in more stickier inflation. Whereas from 2010 to 2020, we used it as a comfort blanket to say, I feel a little bit better about my financial situation that I've got a higher net worth, but I didn't spend it. Let's double click into the remote work part of it before going back to the inflation side, because when we started working on Wall Street, you were in your desk by a certain time. You didn't leave. Typically, you were there for 10 to 14 hours. It was part of the initiation because people told you. And I always thought it was ridiculous. We're sitting here because you sat here in the 80s. So now we have to sit here because you once did it. So it did always seem silly. But specifically in the industry that you grew up in that I did, hours at the trading desk was a big deal. And even there, when people went home, they're not coming back. So was it that the pendulum had just swung too far and labor always had this power? It was just COVID that unleashed it? Or is it that the employers didn't factor in that there's a substitution switching costs that was high? Give me some of the reasons why, because I think I assumed that remote work would happen. And then eventually people would say, once the horses left the barn, it's hard to get them back in. But I was like, yeah, but do you really think you need that many people to do the job? Just start firing people and they'll come back real quick. I think Dick Bloom of Stanford University, professor over there, has been studying remote work for 20 years. And now he's got the hottest topic in the world that he's been studying. And he likes to say that we were progressing, we being the economy, the U.S. economy, was progressing at about half a percent a year more towards remote work. We were at around 4% in 2020. We were going to go to around 4.5%, maybe about 5% by 2022. But we went from 2020 to start of the year, 4% remote work to something like 40% of remote work. And then we've backed off to somewhere around 25 or 30%. I love the way Nick likes to say it is, it's like we sped up the calendar 25 years or 20 years. And we were going to get here where we are right now with the three-day remote work day, but we were going to do it over 15 or 20 years. But we did it in three. And now we really have to start to assimilate it a lot faster as to what it means that we're at a three-day work week quickly. Why did we get there? I think what you pointed out, when we started on Wall Street in the 80s, Anybody who worked in an office job or a service sector job in the 80s, we didn't have the technology we have today. The only place you could do your job was in a central location called an office, most likely in a big building in the middle of a major metropolitan city. 
So if you did not go to that office, you were not able to do your job. The only tool you had was a telephone. And it was probably a landline too. And it might've even still been rotary back then. So it was very, very limiting. But over the last 30 years or so, the technology has progressed that whatever resource I have in that central location called an office, I not only have it at home, I have it in my pocket on my phone. And I could do this job anywhere as long as I have electricity and a computer connection. I even remarked to myself once, that I was doing some work remotely at a Starbucks when I was out of town on my laptop. And I was thinking back to what we're describing here. I was like, man, what I'm doing now in a Starbucks, I used to be part of a group of eight that did it in an office in Manhattan. And now I can do it that quickly. So what I think happened was, and I'll say this bluntly for a lot of service sector jobs, and I really mean a lot of financial services jobs in New York City, the job became easy because the technology was there to do it. So I could hire anybody to do an analyst job or an assistant job or something like that. Here's the technology. Here's how you use the computer. Here's the spreadsheet. Here's the word processor. Here's the email. Here's Slack or Teams. And then go to it and do the job. You could do this job at home. You could do this job here. So what became the deciding factor? as to whether or not you were a good employee or I was a good employee. Commitment. What's commitment? Sit at your desk for 10 hours a day and don't bitch, or 12 hours a day and don't bitch. Because even though I could find anybody, I can go walk down the sidewalk and grab anybody off the sidewalk and say, sit down and do this job. And they could do it just as competently as you or me. They don't want to sit there 10 hours a day every day. But by giving commitment, that's how we differentiated people. But then I think when the pandemic came, changed the attitude. People said, that commitment is not worth it. I have the tools at home or maybe on my phone. You will get what you need out of me. You're just not going to get me to take the path to the Port Authority and then go to some Midtown office on the 38th floor to do it every day of the week. I'll go some days, but not every day of the week. And that's what I think changed. So I think employees are not thinking that they're giving less commitment. They think they're giving more efficient commitment. The last thing Bloom will say about this is, are employees as productive remotely as they were in the office? And the answer is no, they're not. They're a little less productive. Right, they screw around a little bit more. And when they're unsupervised, they don't work at the same level. Fine. But as he points out, that's one half of the equation. The other half of the equation is, now I can cut a lot of costs by giving back offices and support and everything else that I would offer you in that central location. When you net the two together, Most companies are better off with remote work. It's cheaper for them in the long run. They give a little bit on productivity, but they make up a lot more on costs in order to do it that way. Problem with financial services in Manhattan, they're not into giving up on costs. They're all into commitment. And they all want you there. I want to take attendance at 11 p.m. on a Thursday night because I want to see commitment. But could you fill out the spreadsheet as well as I can or as well as some random person I could grab off the sidewalk? Sure. But it's all about the commitment is really what it's about. And that's what I think is changing. You're going to get that commitment from me. I'll still fill out that spreadsheet. I'm just not doing it in the office at 11 p.m. on a Thursday night. That's what's really changed. Super fascinating. I didn't plan to go down to the remote work view as much because when the companies first came out, they all wanted to claim victory. And remote's great. Productivity isn't dropped because they didn't want their customers to be worried that there was anything to be concerned about. What happens if nobody's there manning the ship at my bank? What happens to my bank account? What happens to my healthcare? What happens to different components? 
And then there was a desire where you saw that management team president himself saying, come back to the office for whatever reason, they want the people there. I think there are other non-economic reasons to have the people in the office and it's been a fascinating experience to watch. One real quick thing on that. Let's make sure that everybody understands remote work means three days in the office, doesn't mean zero days in the office. So when we talk about you have to go to the office to collaborate with your employee, you get in three days in the office with them. So it's not like you're never going to the office, but so much of a service sector job, your job, my job, everybody's job, that's a service sector job. Our jobs can be defined into two things, things we have to do and people we have to collaborate with. Things we have to do, fill out, answer emails, fill out surveys, write reports, fill out spreadsheets or update spreadsheets. I could do that in my pajamas at home just as efficiently as I can in midtown Manhattan. That's half my job. The other half of my job is interacting with coworkers, interacting with customers, interacting with vendors. That Zoom is better than not Zoom, but face-to-face is best for that. That's why you go to the office two or three days a week. But what we're learning is you don't need 60 hours in the office for that. You need two or three days in the office for that. But you also need time to finish the spreadsheet, finish the report, answer the emails. And that is most often done best at home because nobody bothers you. So leave me alone and let me finish this stuff and it'll get done timely and it'll get done complete. So we could talk about the service jobs and the higher end jobs and remote work probably for a whole episode. Maybe I will at some point. I want to go back to the restaurant, wage staff, the coffee makers, the jobs that people thought were more wage sensitive. You'd have Starbucks shutting down because they couldn't get help. And suddenly there was a labor shortage in the, not financial services, but the services industry. And I think that there was this If you think about a persona first now, you think about someone working at Starbucks or waiting tables, making money, and then COVID shock happens, they shut those jobs down to no one person. The government sends a stimulus check, but the belief was this was all temporary, that the economic level on that workforce would have to return to work. And when it didn't return to work, the next thing was, well, I want to go through some of the myths of stuff that people's hair was on fire that never came true. And one of them was, well, After they spend all that stimulus money, they're going to have to come back to work and then wages will come back down. But it never happened. Well, if they don't come back to work, then consumer spending is going to drop and it never happened. So why were people so wrong about the whiplash effect that they thought was going to come back so quickly? Well, what you just said, the whiplash effect, I think that ultimately where everybody is, is, as I like to say, 2019 is not coming back. And we keep assuming that it is. Jay Powell uses the words rebalance and renormalization all the time. And that's code word for, remember the way it used to be in 2019? We're going to go back to that. And we're going to go back to everything like that. In fact, we're probably going to get everybody back in the office five days a week. And I still think that we need to tell people it's already rebalanced and it's already renormalized. This is the normal economy, what we've had for the last year, year and a half or so. So what we've been seeing is this assumption among people that the attitudes among workers, especially non-professional classes, like you said, or the 50% of people that have to go to a location to do their job, a waitress, a surgeon, a policeman, a construction worker, they cannot do their jobs remotely. So that those jobs have to be done on site. Well, I think in 2020, a big attitude change on those jobs was health. I don't want to have a job as interest anymore with random people coming in and breathing on me all day long. And I think that that chased out a fair number of people that did those jobs and changed some attitudes. I want to get hazard pay in order to do that job now, which means I pay me more money. And that's what I think is started to happen. And then when we started to see that there was a shortage, I think a lot of people in those jobs found out, I got choices. 
And if you don't want me, I will quit and I'll go somewhere else. And from that, we developed the phrase labor hoarding. I got good employees. They're doing a good job, box retailer, and they keep the shelves stocked. They keep the floors clean. They keep the store running. And then it comes down to sales didn't quite meet our quarter. We need to find some ways to cut costs. And then I immediately say, well, this cohort of employees I have, they're not going anywhere. Because if I let them go, I'm never getting them back. And I'm going to be stuck with forever turning over people trying to find another decent employee. And I think that that attitude started to come in. So where the spending came from, it isn't about let's redefine the excess pandemic spending or something. It's the attitudes change. I'm a little bit more comfortable with my labor situation. I have a job. I get a paycheck. I spend it. I don't save it. I spend it or spend more of it is what I should better say than I used to. What happens if you lose your job? Eh, I'll go to the Bahamas for a week and I'll find another job. That's basically what I do now. They're not as stressed about where they're going to find their next job. I'll become an Instagram influencer if I have to. I'll find something to do until I find another place to make some money. So I think that that's really where it's about. It's not about where's this extra. There was a Wall Street strategist recently on Bloomberg. He was asking, I don't know where the extra money is coming from all this spending. And I was like, it's not extra money. It's a different attitude about the existing amount of money. That money was always there from 2010 to 2020 to have that extra spending. We just didn't have the attitude for it. Our attitude was save it, keep that nest egg. Now our attitude is YOLO, baby. You only live once. Let's go enjoy ourselves. And enjoy ourselves is doing whatever we want to do. Revenge travel. We didn't revenge travel one time in 2020. We did it and we liked it. We have continued to do it. Three years later, we're going to continue to do it until we run out of money is what we're going to do when it comes to revenge travel. So it makes me think of a great quote that I love from Seth Klarman, the legendary investor, that a depression is bad, but a depression era mentality is good for society. The point being that for me, my grandparents came out of the depression. They were the ones that instilled a, if you're going to make a dollar, you're going to save 75 cents and only spend 25 cents because the world can turn on a dime. And if you don't have that savings, bad things can happen. And same thing coming out of a weight, we're conservative and it led to this. And now we're in this blow off phase, which reminds me of the roaring 20s pre-crash. And a lot of people, this is where this, the recession is going to be here in three months, which means the Fed's going to cut in six months, this constant waiting for doom. What do you think that does to the general economic balance if that we're now in a more risk on space where everyone just assumes I can get a job, I can spend more savings than I have? What type of problems is that potentially set up for us? First of all, as far as that attitude goes, part of it, I think, really came down to, I think we underestimate the psyche that we put by mailing everybody money, stimulus checks and stuff. And by the way, we mailed stimulus checks in 2008. A lot of people forgot that. How much was the average stimulus check in 2008? It was less than $100 is what it was. But the stimulus checks we mailed in 2020 were up to many thousands of dollars that we sent everybody. And I think part of the attitude is, I'm going to the Bahamas. I'm spending money. I'm going to do this and that. What happens if the economy hits the skids really hard? I think a lot of people are saying, fine, I'll take a slow walk to the mailbox and I expect another check in the mailbox. So I'm not going to save it. Why am I going to save it? I'm going to enjoy myself because when the next problem occurs, then I'll wait for the mail check and I'll figure it out from there. But then at least I will have had some fun until the next problem. And that's why I think that we've seen spending. Like I said, the amount of money is the same. It's the attitude that's different. That's the way that I look at it. What does it definitely do for the economy? That's why going back to what you said before about inflation, 
Could it be more transitory and persistent at the same time? And the answer is yes. 9% in June of 22 was transitory. There was a lot of supply chain problems in that number. And then that number deflated. So there was transitory in there. But I think when the dust settles on the transitory, as I mentioned earlier, the inflation rate's three to four. It's not one and a half to two. And that's because there's a little bit more persistence. Why is there more persistence? Because I'm spending more money and I'm demanding more things. And that's putting upward pressure on those prices. Like I said, not 8.7 to Bobway upward pressure, but three-ish percent. But does that matter? Enough that if you want interest rates to come down, it does. Enough that if you're expecting a soft landing in the economy, it matters. So that's really where I think it really comes from. And enough that if interest rates stay up, it affects all investments because all investments are about trade-offs. And if you're sitting out there with a 5.3% money market fund, to give you one example, that changes a lot of psyches. Dr. Jeremy Siegel wrote the seminal book, Stocks for the Long Run. And he put out a new edition of it last year. And I'll summarize it real quick. What's the long run potential of the stock market? It's 8%. Okay, so if I buy stocks and I do the Buffett thing and I don't price them for five or 10 years, I should expect that I should get a bond to return of 8%. Well, in 2019, if 8% was the return and a money market fund, just to keep the example simple, was yielding zero, we invented the phrase, Tina, there is no alternative. Because what are you going to do? You're going to leave your money at zero or you're going to take some risk to get some return? You're going to take some risk. So we had Tina. Well, in 2024, the money market fund is 5.3%. That's S&P's national average for money market funds. That's two-thirds-ish, maybe 70% of what the stock market will give you without any market risk. There is an alternative now. How much do I need to extend to get that final third? It's a lot different than how much do I need to extend to go from zero to 8% as opposed to I'm getting 5.3 now. How much more risk do I want to take to take a shot at getting eight? Well, if you're older... You might not want to take any of that risk. Fine, I'll just churn out the 5% numbers, please. Thank you very much. It's higher than the inflation rate. And I could sleep at night knowing that I will just get that for now. I'll deal with it when and if the Fed cuts rates. So I think it's really changed a lot of things. And you've seen a trillion and a half dollars go into money market funds. You've seen bond funds have some huge inflows into them in 2023 and 2024 because there's a yield. And I think you've seen equities really not get as big an inflow as they were getting pre-pandemic because it's about a trade-off and there is an alternative now. So that higher inflation rate leads to a higher interest rate, leads to a trade-off. That doesn't hold back the stock market. It did climb back to new all-time highs again by late January, but its two-year return has been zero. And the question is, Is there going to be a big tidal wave of money going from stocks or going from other investments in the stocks as we go forward from here? That's always possible. But now it's a little more complicated question because there is an alternative that gives you most of what the stock market is supposed to give you over the long run, unless you're just going to degen it and say, no, 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 we're going to go into max seven stocks and they're going to do another 100 plus percent year or something like that. But not many people do that. Focusing on the Fed. I think if you study financial history, most people will say that the Federal Reserve is at the scene of every crime, that every recession, the precursor is the Fed over-tightening and pushing the economy. Hikes until something breaks. And this hikes until something breaks theory, I want to touch in on it. And there's a specific angle I want to think about. So two-part question is this idea that the Fed does something until it breaks, your take on that. And then the second point is, it feels like there's this 08 and maybe COVID PTSD that 
I remember we used to have recessions or crashes, but they were industry crashes. The tech stocks crashed. The telecom companies crashed. Enron caused an energy crash. The SNL crisis crashed. What made 2008 so unique was because it was the financial systems plumbing, we just crashed the entire world simultaneously and everything went to shit. Everything was correlated to one. The world blew up and we were scared. So when people say the Fed's going to do something and something's going to break, there's two parts. What's your take? Do you think that's going to happen? And then two, can't we just get back to industries imploding instead of the entire global economy crashing and maybe people are overreacting on the Tuesday stuff? So to the first part of your question, yes, let me define what I mean. The line is the Fed raises rates till something breaks. I still think that's the case. The controversy comes in, have they raised rates enough to break something? Well, we thought in 22 was the stock market because by October 22, it had corrected 25%. Then in early 23, maybe it was the bond market because it had its worst sell-off on a total return basis since the Civil War. Yes, since the Civil War is what the bond market sell-off was. And then we thought it was the banks in the spring of 23. But then as we get to the end of 23 and into early 24, I'm arguing that it was none of that. We didn't break anything. We wobbled a little bit here and there, but the economy didn't go into recession. The stock market didn't fall apart. You don't break something and then produce a new high in the stock market. You break something in the stock market falls apart. So we're not getting any of that. So I think the answer is we didn't break anything. And my take on that is this level of interest rates we can handle it. Now, yeah, if you're talking to a mortgage broker, he's had just exploded because he needs rates to come down. So everybody refis. Get it that there are sectors in the economy, overlevered borrowers, that are not going to take well to saying that this level of interest rates, this level of mortgage rates at 7% was 8% in early November. We can handle that. And that gets to the other part of what you said too. The way I like to explain it is there are people like Bill Ackman, Bill Gross, Mary Daly of the San Francisco Fed, Austin Goolsby of the Chicago Fed, they've all said the same thing. Real rates are at a 15-year high. They're too high. They're going to choke the economy. So as inflation comes down, we need to cut rates to bring down real rates. And I said, your problem is you've anchored yourself of 2010 to 2020, the QE period of zero interest rates. And you look at 1.8% real rates, and you go, oh my God, these are way too high a rate. They're going to break something. Real rates, just so everybody understands, is an interest rate after the inflation rate. So it's the inflation rate plus something on top of that. That's 1.8% on top of whatever the inflation rate is, is what a real rate is. So what was the average real rate before 2009? Say from the 90s to 2009, that's when we started QE. Average 2.7, according to the 10-year tips break-even, the Treasury Inflation Protected Security break-even rate. We're below average for the pre-QE period. So the way I've argued it is the distortion, the wrong interest rate was 2010 to 2020 at zero. You got used to it. So now that you look at 1.8, you say, my God, look how high this is. This is probably closer to being correct than that zero was. So the Ackmans and the Grosses and the Fed officials are saying, no, 1.8 is wrong. It's too high. And I'm arguing to you, no, it's actually closer to normal. What was wrong was zero. We can handle this level of rates. And that's another reason why on my tombstone, it says 5.5%, because I think we can handle this level of rates. And these rates could go up and everything will be okay. But yes, there is a level of rates out there that will be too much and break things. I just don't think we've gotten there yet. And I don't think that there's going to have to be this 
need or demand that we have to cut rates before everything falls apart because A, it's not falling apart. And even the housing market is actually doing okay. The way I like to explain it, if we had this conversation 18 months ago and you asked me, what's the housing market going to look like when we get to 8% mortgages? The answer is a hell of a lot worse is what we thought it would have been than it actually turned out to be. It's actually weathered this mortgage rate a lot better. It's not great. I'm not saying it's happy. Please give me 9% mortgages because we can handle eight. It's just not nearly as bad as everybody thought it was going to be. And now that we've actually backed off to seven, you can actually argue that there's some green shoots showing up in the housing market that it might be actually picking up again. And that's all it needed was a 7% mortgage rate. So you mentioned the real rate of 1.8 and 2.7, which I love, which is probably a really cool segue to, for all this bearish talk about rates, there's a fun twist here that you've launched an ETF that's a fixed income product. Let's get into that because it does have a huge overweight to tips. And I assume it dovetails nicely to the point you just made about your view on rates versus gross the bond king. Yes. So I partnered with Wisdom Tree and I created an index called the Bianco Research Total Return Index. It is a long-only fixed-income index, so it's always in the market, and there's a lot of academic research that backs this up, too, that basically within the bond market, there's five factors, or tilts as we like to call it, that determine whether or not your fixed-income portfolio or index, in this case, is going to go up or down. Your duration. Are you more sensitive or less sensitive to the movement of interest rates? If you think interest rates are going to go up, prices go down, you want to have a shorter duration, which means you're less sensitive to interest rates, so you don't get hurt as bad. If you think interest rates are going to go down, prices go up, you want to be more sensitive, you want to take advantage of that. Your yield curve exposure. All right, you might have an interest rate, in our case, 90% of our index. We have an index, a baseline index, which is broad-based index, just like a Bloomberg aggregate or a JP Morgan broad investment grade index. And our duration, our interest rate sensitivity is 90% of what our index is. How do we own that? Do we own that between five and seven years, which would be in bond market parlance bulleted? Or do we own a bunch of two years and a bunch of 30 years in the same average duration? And that would be called barbell. What's the difference between one and the other? Bulleted would be you think the yield curve is going to steepen. Barbell, you think the yield curve is going to flatten. That's the second factor that we look at. We're neutral on or bullet barbell because the yield curve so flat. The reason we're neutral is that curve works as it doesn't matter. If the yield curve doesn't move, you could pick whatever you want. You're going to get the same return because they all yield the same thing for now. Now, eventually the yield curve will move and that will change. Credit. Are you overweight or underweight credit relative to an index? That's like your stock bet. If you're overweight credit, if you're reaching for yield and own more credit than your index, you're making the same bet that you think that the S&P is going to keep going up. Or if you're underweight, S&P is going to go down. We happen to be also neutral there, actually 99%, which is effectively neutral, rounding error to neutral on it right now. Thinking about moving that again, but we haven't quite decided when or if how we're going to do that. Structure or volatility is a fourth one. And that would be because mortgages would fall into structure, mortgage-backed securities. A lot of fixed-income securities have an embedded option. And embedded option means that things like implied volatility, actual volatility, shape of the yield curve matters a lot on the performance of those securities. We happen to be very short on the structure side of our portfolio because we think that volatility has been very elevated in the bond market and it's going to stay that way. And the last one, the fifth one, is what we'll call a conviction or out-of-index bet. That is, where do we think there's a big conviction? And we can be in our index up to 20%. 
we are at a maximum and it isn't short-term tips, short-term meaning zero to five-year tip securities. Those are securities that are less sensitive to the movement of interest rates, but give me the inflation rate plus a real yield. I think the inflation rate is going to stay stickier or higher. Then I want to get that real yield on top of it. And being short means that if interest rates move up, price doesn't get hit that bad. That's the way we've structured our index. Two other things. Wisdom Tree came out with an ETF, WTBN, that tracks our index. So we're long only all the time, and they track our index. Bianco Advisors, the other cheap commercial, is the website for our index. So you can see where we are in our index and why we are that way on our index. Last question to Begs is, but you're bearish. You think rates are going to five and a half. It's on your tombstone. Why do I want to buy a long-only bond index if you're bearish? Good question. And the answer is, two years ago, three years ago, you wouldn't want to because it wasn't any yield. And basically, you were all subject to price risk. So therefore, that was a different equation. But today, there's a yield. Or as my friend Jim Grant of Grant's Interest Rate Observer likes to say, it's nice to have an interest rate to observe again. So that's the yield on a broad investment grade index is around 4.7%. I want that. I want that 4.7%. I want to manage that 4.7%. I want to protect it when I think the price is going to go down. I want to be more exposed to when the price is going to go up. And when all these other factors, whether it's the yield curve, credit, structure, or the conviction bets, I want to try and take advantage to give you to hold that whole yield and hopefully do something more than that yield. So right now I'm trying to protect that yield. I want to get that yield and I want to protect it. Two other quick things. The yield curve really helps in this environment. If I decide to shorten duration, I still get a 4.7% yield with less interest rate sensitivity because the yield curve is so flat. Usually the yield curve is very steep. So if I wanted to shorten duration, I go from 4%, 4.7 to 4 or 380. Then I have a trade-off. I have less exposure to interest rate movements, but I also have less yield. But now I can get the same yield. So it really helps me to invest in that. Final question, but can you beat an index? Isn't that hard to do? And the answer is, well, in equities, history has shown, yes, it is. The S&P 500 really outperforms a lot of strategies. I saw something recently written beginning of January that if you look at all of the equity options strategies, buy rights, covered calls, on and on and on, S&P 500 index beat all of them. There was no equity option strategy that beat it. So we all know this. Throw our hands in the air. Why bother trying to beat the index? You can't. Just own SPY. Or if you want to be racy, own QQQ. I get that. And that makes sense. But in fixed income land, the index itself that we're managing against, the benchmark, usually falls in around not the 90th or 95th percentile like the S&P. It falls around the 50th percentile. So the index is somewhere in the middle of the pack. Historically, you've got an even money chance, if you want to just think of it in those terms, of outperforming the index because it's in the middle of the pack. Why is it different in equities versus fixed income? There's a lot of reasons, but I'll give you one simple one. In equities, your biggest weightings in your index are your all-stars, your NVIDIAs, your Apples, your Amazons. And you had to be all in on those things and press it all the way, or you're never going to keep up with the index. And that's hard to do because those stocks usually show up as overvalued on a lot of screens and they're very volatile. And it's very scary for a lot of managers to do that. But in fixed income, who are your biggest weightings? They're your problem children. They're your overlevered companies. They're your countries that borrow too much debt. 
there's warning signs that they've got problems, Greece or some over-levered high-yield companies or something like that. And you could see those warning signs and you stay away from them and they have problems and you outperform your index. That's why the index falls in the 50th percentile in fixed income and not the 95th percentile like equities. It's all about who your biggest weightings are. Are you their all-stars, which is what you get in equities, or are they most likely your problem children, which is what you get in fixed income? A lot of fixed income people are going to be mad at me, but I'll add to that that, and it depends on the index. If you're looking at a corporate credit index or something with risk, you're totally spot on. But if you look at the ag, 75 to 80% of it's AAA. It's the lowest risk paper in the world. So if you just own any of the factors in tilt and hold on, like a famous PM one said, you're going to win in most of the markets until it blows up and then you're going to win again. So because the benchmark is essentially risk-free, it doesn't take much of a tilt to outperform a broad-based index in fixed income. And that goes more to me that the indexes are completely wrong, which leads me down to a whole other rant of the whole passive fixed income ETF in the fixed income world. It's not for tracking the, those benchmarks. Like what you have created is an active benchmark, which I find interesting, but there's lots of reasons why the passive benchmarks aren't that good for the bond market. Exactly. And just to update you, remember now that Moody's downgraded the treasury. So now there's only 1.9% or something like that of the index is AAA. The rest of it is AA plus, but you're right. There are other risks in bonds other than corporate default. So yes, in an investment grade index, the risk of default is fairly small. But there's also interest rate risk, there's convexity risk, there's volatility risk, there's a lot of other types of risks. But in fixed income land, these risks on a discretionary or active basis is manageable because a lot of these risks are problems. Whereas in equities, it's hold your nose and buy the 300 PE stock that just keeps going up, even though you can't justify it. And NVIDIA just keeps going and going and going. And if you're not in it, Good luck trying to beat the index. That's the major difference, I think, between fixed income and equities, which is why when you say you're trying to outperform an index, at least in fixed income, you walk into it with a history. The index history is there are ways that you can do it. Maybe the answer is then you got to argue, can you beat the other guy? That's really who you're competing against. Where in equities, you're competing against the S&P 500 as well. Maybe I use a sports analogy. Fixed income is a lot like tennis. Can you beat the other guy on the other side of the court? Whereas equities is a lot like golf. Can you beat the course is what you're trying to do with equities. So we've talked about this on the show quite a bit, that there's been this trend of my old world and some of the new stuff I got interested with crypto, that there's a lot of fixed income friends like you that are also interested in crypto. And we've covered some of the reasons why. But I'd be curious just to touch on your view of crypto. You've been really vocal on the Bitcoin ETF, but in a way that I think is more nuanced than what most people thought. So I thought it'd be good for you to share your thoughts on that. So two things. I am a long-term bull and big believer in the crypto space. Maybe it's because I came out of the fixed income markets and fixed income markets are more tied with banking and financial services a little bit more than say maybe an equity manager would be. And I came to the conclusion that the current system is not very good. And if somebody wants to develop an alternative financial system, especially for people that don't live in first world developed countries, if you live in Latin America, Africa, Southern Asia, and stuff like that, your currencies, your banking systems are very, very suspect. And ways to store wealth is very, very difficult and expensive and subject to being stolen from you and stuff. And the first world has had 150 years to try and bring their system to the rest of the world, and they haven't been able to do it. So 
I've been a very big component of DeFi and of crypto as to saying it's not there yet, but it's working on becoming an alternative, especially for those people. Maybe not people in Greenwich, Connecticut, but maybe people in Venezuela is where it would really benefit them a lot more. So big picture, I'm very optimistic on the crypto space. So now I'm going to shit on it for the rest of the conversation. And I'm going to start with, I am not a fan of the Bitcoin ETF. I'm not a fan of it for two reasons. Reason one is I think it got ridiculously overhyped that this was a seminal event in crypto space that Larry Fink of BlackRock filled out a prospectus to offer Bitcoin ETF on June 15th. And I feel like, and I'm going to piss off my crypto friends. Oh boy, the captain of the football team knows my name. He wants to be part of what I want to be part of. He wants to play Dungeons and Dragons with me. So therefore, we got all excited that the TradFi firms want in on a spot Bitcoin ETF. And we overhyped this thing to such a degree that there was a fee war that broke out on these ETFs before they even started trading. So when they started trading on January 11th, a lot of them started with a zero fee. And immediately in the first couple of weeks, right after they started trading, they fell 20% or even a little bit more than 20%. So I thought that it was overhyped and it was going to lead to a big correction and it was going to leave a bad taste for a while in the traditional financial or normies mouth that see, that's just a bunch of bet on red and black and it just zooms up and down for no unknown reason. I don't want to play it or I'm not ready to go there for a lot of those people. That was the first reason that I was worried about it. And we have seen that. The second reason, it's back to my original long-term bullish thesis. You guys are building a new financial system. So start getting on building it. Tell me about what you're doing about building it. Tell me about your new innovations in DeFi or in custody or in wallets or whatever you are that you're working on or your new token ideas or real-world tokenization, where you're taking real-world assets and putting them on the blockchain. Instead, we shoved all that aside, and we all became a bunch of DGENs about number go up because all of the wealth managers are going to put 1% of everybody's money in the Bitcoin ETF, and we got to get in ahead of it, and we got to just gamble on the number going up. And I'm like, that's not why I'm here. That's not why a lot of people are here. They're here because you're trying to build an alternative. And if you lose your focus on building the alternative, you haven't created anything new. You've created the same damn thing that we have, except you've created a digital version of it. I don't need a digital version of the dollar that runs on the blockchain. I already have the dollar that the Federal Reserve runs using the FedNow system. So what have you accomplished unless you get back to building new and different things? Oh, but we're still doing that. Yeah, I get it. But it seems like a lot of the focus has been diverted from that. And a lot of the money and the attention has gone away from building a financial system to just let's put together another speculative tool to bet on Bitcoin. And let's put together spot Ethereum ETFs after that. So we could speculate on that. Maybe a spot Solana ETF after that. And it's like, we're not getting towards helping to build an alternative decentralized financial system. So That's where I like the idea and concept of a Bitcoin ETF, spot ETF, but we overhyped it to the point where it's now in a sell the news correction. And we're taking the attention away from what we're supposed to be doing. And what we're supposed to be doing is building something new and something different. And I'm afraid that that narrative is being muddled. What's your take, Eric? What do you think about this? So I think that I agree with you on the mission of it. I think there's a lot of mission orientation of the crypto world that makes sense. 
the one thing I'll say is the reason why you can't necessarily do all the innovation is because of the regulatory environment. So to me, it was as much a breakthrough in the regulatory footing of the United States as anything. This wasn't approved by the SEC. This was a court overruling the SEC to say you've gone too far. I'm a big fan of wanting blockchain and crypto companies to develop and test the stuff in the US, in the world's greatest capital market systems, and then export it to all of these other nations. I don't want to see all my friends. I just talked to a friend today who renounced his US citizenship and moved to the UAE to build a company. It's probably going to raise a huge number because he's in the right spot with the right regulatory environment. This is a person who would have been able to work anywhere on Wall Street who could be here building it. For me, the Bitcoin ETF just was a breakthrough moment of, I knew this was going to happen. It's inevitable. If there's one thing that I know is truth, if there's money to be made, Wall Street's going to find a way to charge a VIG on what's being made. So there's no way they were going to just watch this thing balloon and not get into it. On the other side, if this is the end of it, if this is the last thing we did, Bitcoin ETF was the final part of the video game, then I think Satoshi and everyone who worked on this thing would be massively disappointed. My hope is that when we look back on it, it was part of the story where they broke the regulatory regime and explained to the world that there's something here that we should have the brightest minds working on and allow innovation in the United States of America. And I think from that, at least you create the opportunity to create the environment to build the world that you're so hoping we get to. I agree. And what I'd like to say is if the idea of a Bitcoin ETF, an Ethereum ETF spot, is to bring normies, normal people into the game, play, you've got a stake, you're starting to learn and understand this. But then hopefully say, this is a gateway to, it's time that you get yourself an electronic wallet. It's time that you learn how to stake on DeFi or learn what DeFi is, decentralized finance, and then learn how to stake and how to use decentralized finance. It's time that we start to understand these new tools that cannot be permissioned, cannot be censored. And we need them, especially in Latin America, Asia, and Africa, because if you allow censorship and permission, the government is going to steal their money or the financial system is going to rob them of their money. But by having it decentralized and permissionless, no one can take it away from them. And remember, the other thing about this space is what does 80% of everybody in the world have? down to people in a refugee camp in Africa. They all have cell phones. So they all have a tool to hold their wealth in an electronic wallet on a mobile phone. Could JP Morgan bring that to them? Sure, but they've had 150 years to do it and it hasn't happened. Or it hasn't happened in a cost-effective way. And if the crypto DeFi space could bring that to them in a cost-effective way, that would be huge. So if the Bitcoin ETF is a gateway to get normies into this game, to start learning and understanding and pushing that way, go for it, man. Great. But you're right. If all this is about is we've got the red chip and the black chip, and now we can just speculate on the red chip and the black chip up and down, then yeah, we've lost the plot. And I'm not saying we've lost the plot, but boy, there are times where I feel like some people are acting like we lost the plot here with this Bitcoin ETF. And maybe this sell-off would be good, sell the news event, because it will remind them, get back to developing this financial system and quit worrying about what day we're going to hit 60,000 in Bitcoin. It'll come if you build the proper system, as opposed to just trying to hype an ETF to get it there. I agree. Jim, this has been a lot of fun. Our closing question is, where are we in the cycle of from euphoria to despair? Well, I'm going to go with the bond market and I'm going to go with, with my tombstone number of 550. So we are past the peak in prices, which was 2020. And we're in the early stages of the decline because of multi-year. So we're 
I think approaching the anxiety phase, because if I'm correct, and later this year, we go through 5%, the old peak in the 10-year note from October of last year, that will definitely be in full-blown anxiety And at that point. That's where I think at least we are in the fixed income market. Thank you, Jim. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, check out joincolossus.com. There you will find every episode of this podcast, along with transcripts, our weekly newsletter, and resources to continue your learning.